WHIVLP New Orleans 102.3. This show's Good Morning Comrade. You can listen every Tuesday on WHIV 102.3 FM. You can also listen anywhere in the world, whivfm.org slash listen. Uh, so today uh, we have a very special episode uh, because uh, as of release of the show, uh, we are going to be have back in school uh, one day. And so I decided to bring on uh, a Jefferson Parish teacher. Uh, and he's also done some really uh, nice writing on uh, the ideas or the idea that sending kids back to school is like a new Tuskegee experiment. Uh, welcome to the show, Brian Williams. Thank you for having me. And we also Hello, we also have Aaron and Scott on the show. Uh, what's Hi, going on, y'all? So um, anyway, uh, as of release of well, when the show airs, uh, there's going to be a it's already going to have been one day since we returned to school. So I guess the first question I would ask you, Brian, uh, what do you think you're going to be thinking on the Tuesday morning when, you know, after school opens on Monday? Um, I, I assume I'm going to be thinking that I will have been completely validated in all of my fears and suspicions about how unsafe the reopening is. Uh, I think on Tuesday morning, I will be more scared to go to school than I am. Uh, than I will be tomorrow morning uh, because I will see how ineffective the social distancing plans are, how unrealistic they are, uh, and how unworkable they are. Uh, I, I suspect after seeing a couple of hallways full of kids who I guarantee will not 100% be wearing their masks, mm -hmm. uh, I will be feeling very nervous. Mm -hmm. And oh, mm -hmm. I saw online it was like somebody had sent, so, you know, there's a bunch of states that have already gone back and a parent had sent their kid to, to school in an Avengers mask and they came home wearing a Batman mask. So <laughs> just feeling like kids are not going to be great at that. I don't know. It makes me nervous to think about. Kids are pretty bad with boundaries generally. Yeah. Yeah, they are. And, and um, that's one of the things that I'm really concerned of in, in general is that is um, our schools like, like are, are we going to even be able to um, do things like um, typical maintaining social distancing and maintaining masks and, and, and things like that just because um, I mean, we've seen it. It's, it's kind of died down a little bit, but there are definitely people that still like hold the position that actually coronavirus isn't real and wearing masks is actually a, a an op or something like that. And if kids and you teach high school, I teach elementary school, it's probably different um, for those particular situations. However, um, I can see if like a parent gives children like that idea. And if you don't like it, you can take it up with mom and dad. They're telling me not to wear a mask. Um, <laughs> it, they, it's really difficult to to proceed from that point if you're an educator yeah I, I i tend to agree with that um it's i i'm very concerned about what percentage of students who are going to be attending school have been told it's not real have been told not to take it seriously and you know even if they are taking it seriously at school here's the whole thing i'm de i'm dependent on how they're behaving at home too mm -hmm. right um, so this is something that even if a parent is is sending their kid to school in good faith on the idea that we're going to be maintaining social distancing and we're going to be doing everything right. Um, one, they 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 need to realize that's that's just not cap We're not capable of that. Um, but more importantly, they're sending their kids to school with kids who do not think this is real, with families who do not believe this is real, who are not taking it seriously for one reason or another. Uh, so you got to realize you're you you are commingling your kids with kids who, for a very variety of reasons, 
do not think this is real and will not be taking it seriously and are going to cough on your kid because they think it's funny. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm just waiting for that one. Uh, I'm just waiting for the fight to break out over somebody purposely coughing on someone or somebody spraying disaffected on someone. Guarantee it. Guarantee Mm -hmm. it. I will bet my next month's paycheck. (laughs) And um, I guess we can use that as an opportunity to talk a little bit about one of the articles that you wrote. Um, specifically, we could start with the uh, new Tuskegee experiment one that you uh, d- d- that you put out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, can you just sort of like lay out the argument that you're making, describe the Tuskegee experiment, and describe what um, what how this situation is similar? Yeah. Th- yes. Um, so the Tuskegee experiment is a, it's another one of those dark chapters in history that um, is I think well known in the African American community and not as well known in the larger community. So right up there with the Tulsa race massacre, right up there with the uh, Wilmington coup. Um, but the Tuskegee experiment uh, was run by the U.S. government in 1932 in Tuskegee, Alabama. Uh, it was set up to study syphilis, and what they did was they uh, found African American men who had syphilis. They Promise them come in, get medical treatment. Uh, you know, we'll you know we'll help you. We'll you know we'll, we'll, it's a scientific experiment. We'll see what works. They gave them all placebos, right? Obviously, you know, there's you can do a control group of placebos, but they gave them all placebos. There was never an intention to help. There was never an intention to um, to to uh, do anything medically ethical. They were just simply going to see uh, what happened. Uh, this experiment was repeated again in the 60s or 70s in Guatemala, also by the U.S. government. But um, but the point is, it was such a disregard for these people's lives, right? It was, um, it was we can experiment on you. We can see what happens to you. And quite frankly, you know, when the president's son is staying home from school because his school, his elite wealthy school, deems it unsafe to go back, but then kids you know, Jefferson Parish serving lower income students, uh, largely minority students are going back. Um, it, it feels like it feels like a lot of parallels, especially because the, the school system keeps insisting it's safe and it's not. Mm-hmm. It's not. Common sense tells you it's not. They tell you Ochsner keeps signing off on their stuff. Ochsner's not signing off. You have to listen to what Ochsner says. Ochsner says, because we're helping, it's safer. Mm-hmm. They never say it's safe. Right, because right. if they said it was safe, then they would have something to hold them accountable to. If they said it was, it's, if you're exactly. relatively, and it, I mean, you're an English teacher, I'm an English teacher. Uh, if you're saying something is comparatively safer, you're not necessarily saying that something is safe. You're saying that it's safer than it would be if we didn't put these things in, have, didn't have these implica- uh, these um, uh, procedures or guidelines or whatever, and if it didn't have like oversight and testing by um by the but but there's not really a definition of what is what what is a safe school in in this situation correct me if i'm wrong but y'all are really having to ensure that your own classrooms are safe that's not something that's being done top down right like i've seen a ton of articles and like a ton of like i've seen um, teachers having pinterest boards on like how to set their classrooms up for covid so it's seeming like it's not you know, you're not even being forced to follow any specific guidelines, right? I mean, I've seen like uh, like sporting events and let's say someone's using a podium, they'll have people wipe it down. And I do not believe that the school board would be paying for anything like that, correct? Yeah, there. I mean, the guidance is uh, nominal at best. Uh, and then, yeah, it's a lot is being left up to the individual schools. And then the and then the teachers in their individual classrooms, um, and teachers and teachers in their own classrooms have uh, varying degrees of uh, safety going on already. Like I'm I'm very fortunate. I'm speaking out, um, but I'm you know I'm going to have five kids in my class for one of my classes. Uh, other teachers still have twenty, and there is no physical ability for them to meet the six feet social distancing. So uh, it's very haphazard. It's very patchwork. Uh, it's very, and again, Ill, ill-conceived and under-resourced. And yes, and again, a lot of the, the burden is being shifted to, per usual, the teachers. I'm basically supposed to do a janitorial clean down of my class uh, in between every, uh, every, every period. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then w- with the five rags I was provided, and then I'm supposed to take those rags to my house. Oh, you got rags? I didn't yeah. get rags. 
That's oh, nice. Racks. Yeah, I, I got racks, fine. Brand new. <laughs> uh, but yeah. And, and I mean, it's, it's absurd and it's obscene. Yeah, and then I, I think that um, one of the things that people like 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 that people maybe don't notice or that they don't expect or, or some of the the ways that that this does kind of roll down the hill all the way on top of of the educators specifically not just teachers but every person that works in a school is okay so we have we have zero national guidelines because we expect the states to be able to do something and then they have okay we're gonna have some very very basic state level guidelines that don't actually have any information on how you're supposed to implement anything it's just a bunch of things that that we're suggesting that you do and then that's passed down to districts districts get like I mean, in, in my sort of reading of how the, and this is, you know, my reading, um, other, maybe people, other, uh, others see it differently, the way that they have the, these guidelines that are implemented in district plans is essentially like they changed a little bit of the letterhead and they made a copy of it and they just passed it down and then essentially said, hey, schools implement this. And then schools might do like a similar thing. Maybe they'll have like a shortened chart version or whatever. And they're like, okay, teachers, here you go. Now you have to figure out everything. Yeah, and, 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 and for me, it's even worse than that, because then what we're also seeing is the purposeful watering down of guidelines. Mm -hmm. We saw it with the CDC last week, where all of a sudden they came out, right? They wait for Fauci to go into surgery, and then <laughs> the White House presses the CDC to come out with new guidelines that makes it easier to not test. Mm -hmm people right and that's why that's one reason why you know i, I love the tuskegee experiment um comparison but one reason it doesn't actually hold up is because at least an experiment you get data and now what we're seeing is that they're purposely trying to hide data mm -hmm. uh, so whether it's Al the university of alabama sending out a message to professors don't tell people about covid lsu saying that, that is mind-blowing to release any covid numbers and then facing extreme pushback um, Jefferson Parish stating that I won't necessarily be told if someone has COVID who comes into my classroom. Um, and then them now trying to get away with not testing people, right? If you don't have symptoms, we're not going to test you. We know that's not the right way to do this. Mm -hmm. And so this is, for me, it's almost verging on the level of conspiracy. That there is such a determination to get these schools open, to get our kids' parents' uh, labor going again, to try to reopen this economy that they just, they don't give a damn mm -hmm. about any of our safety. And that's the only conclusion I can reach when you now start to see that they're actually manipulating the numbers to hide how unsafe it is. You are listening to WHIVLP New Orleans 102.3. You're listening to Good Morning Comrade, goodmorningcomrade.com. Uh, we have uh, Jeff, Scott, and Aaron in the studio, and we also have a uh, very special guest, Jefferson Parish educator, Brian Williams. Aaron, did you have a question? I think one of the things that's been the most insidious about this is a lot of the um, the messaging around why we have to open schools. And, mm -hmm. and it, it makes it sound like, oh, it is for a good thing, because they're saying, you know, we don't want to widen the education gap. We don't want, you know, oh, a lot of kids don't have technology at home, so we have to make sure they get back in schools, as if the rich kids are not going to be home with a private teacher for all the kids in the neighborhood. So it's this idea that oh, either we open schools or we are going to widen the already awful racial and income-based education gap. And, and in reality, what we're doing is we're going to widen that anyway, because it's you're going to learn better in a small pod with like a teacher one-on-one -on -one anyway. And, you know, if kids are going to have to be out for two weeks because of quarantine, like how is that going to affect their schooling? You know, if they have to be kept home because parents are, you know, their health is at risk. So, it's just really frustrating to me because you have a lot of people, I think, who, you know, are really in good faith thinking, hey, we want kids to go back to school because we don't want we don't want this like what, this education gap to, to widen. But so it's, it's hard because you have people making really who are making good faith arguments. And then you have the people who are exploiting those good faith arguments to really just put a lot of people at risk and it's going to end up widening the gap too. So the whole thing is just really a little depressing. Yeah. I keep, I keep saying that, you know, we're in a situation where there are no good options, right? 
coming back to school during a pandemic in person is not a good option. Leaving kids at home, keeping schools closed is not a good option. But the question is, which one's the worst? Right. And obviously, I think putting people's lives at risk is worse, even worse than kids falling behind. You can catch kids up. It's all we try to do at Jefferson Parish. Our kids are always behind and we're always trying to catch them up. Um, that, that even applies to my honors kids. They're not where honors kids are normally at. We're always trying to catch kids up. So, I mean, so so some of these arguments just kind of fall a little flat, but they also reveal another important thing. And that is, so along with the idea that teachers are valued in this society and education's important because we're teaching the future generations, we also see the entire economy depends on our labor, uh, us providing kids with a safe place to be. But, but I can also say this, I can teach virtually. My job is to teach a subject. I can teach my subject virtually. I can give those instructions virtually. I appreciate not every student has the materials they need, the, the equipment they need, and we need to address that. Maybe instead of millions, spending millions on hand sanitizer, we get more computers. Um, but but what we're finding out what I the reason I need kids in class is so that I can teach them character. I can teach my subject, but teaching character, teaching discipline, teaching how to interact with people—that's what we do. We're not babysitters. We're not. You don't just put your kid in our class and we just watch them. We teach them that we can do virtually. The only reason I need them in person is to teach them character. And that's another thing that teachers aren't credited with for doing and is another, and raises another question of why are our schools so underfunded when what we do is so important and so vital and so critical on so many levels. Yeah. I want to pick out a point that you mentioned, Brian, but before I do that, uh, so what, as a sort of couched in thing in your question uh, first, Aaron, they always like, you, like, like, and, and Brian sort of addressed it as well. Yeah. They, 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 they don't ever want to address the problem of the material inequalities uh, that exist, uh, in terms of like computer, like getting more computers, getting more, um, getting more like access to internet for kids. They always want to focus in and drill down on the fact that, oh, well, well they don't have it. And that's why we need to get them back into school. And that's the conclusion that they have as opposed to, well, we need to get them these things so that we can remain safe. Like it, they, they, they just skip right to that conclusion and they just ignore things that can happen uh, to do an alternative to what they already sort of predisposed to be, to want to do. Um, yeah, and I think there's a lot of parent shaming too that goes along with that. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, you know, the parent having to make the really hard decision about whether their kid's going to go back into in-person learning, if they're going to do virtual learning, or if they're going to get homeschooled. And I think a lot of pressure is being put on individual parents to have to make that choice for their family when there's really no assistance coming from for the powers that be because you know i think a lot of parents would hey if i could afford to stay home if i could afford to have another computer if i could afford to upgrade my internet so that multiple devices could yeah of course i would keep my kid home but you know if it's not materially available for them to keep their kids home and then we're kind of you know i've kind of seen around like oh you're sending your kids in and it's like okay well they don't have time off they don't have a babysitter they don't have any of the things they would need to keep their kid home and I'm, you know, a lot of people would, you know, I'm sure don't want the teachers to have to make the choice to have to come in, but there's also no other options for them. So it's, we're really, we're just like outsourcing all of our outrage that mm. should be uh, the government and we're putting it on individuals for the choices they're making. Yeah. It's, it's really dividing us and it's not helping at all. That's an excellent point. Yeah, for me, I think, I mean, that's what keeps bringing me back to the idea that I, I, I fear that too much of this is economic, mm -hmm. right? Because we know what a safe shutdown would look like. Give everybody a couple of thousand bucks a month, let everybody stay home, take away, right, the, the, the pressure that uh, economic necessity creates that's forcing people to send their kids to school and things like that. We know, we can, we, we know how to do this safe, and it's as simple as taking care of people better. But instead, what we're doing is something incredibly reckless, incredibly dangerous for the to try to force people off of uh, unemployment, to uh, force people back into work. Right. Like it's no coincidence that uh, evictions are starting up as school is starting up. Right. It's that pressure. They're trying to turn the screws on every single person they can to force them back into labor. 
to force them back into work. Uh, and so uh, it, it, it's a it's a trickle out thing of, of, yeah, they need our labor. They need our parents' kids' labor, but in order to get that, they need us to be in an unsafe position as well. Uh, and it's just, it's absurd. And it, and it just speaks to the lingering inequalities that we've had in our society for since forever. Mm-hmm. And yeah, my great fear is it's gonna it's gonna be like another Katrina situation where there's gonna be low census at a lot of the schools because parents are keeping their kids home and doing these like pods. And then oh okay, well the census is low. I guess we're gonna have to close this community school. And oh, Kip is looking for another another place to open. Oh well, is it that convenient? And it's I I'm just like really I haven't even been. I'm glad we're having this conversation because I don't have kids. So I haven't really even felt like I'd be like, you know what? I'm not even engaged in this conversation because it really is like incredibly stressful, but it is important because even if you don't have kids, look, these are really important issues. I mean, the fact that COVID could just become some, I mean, and we've seen the cases that have, you know, popped up in around universities and schools as they've opened. Uh, they said there were 9,000 new cases of COVID in the 15 days that Florida schools were opened, uh, I just saw, um, which is, <laughs> that's significant. Uh, and you see other places, there's schools closing all over the country. Everybody's seen that picture of uh, those kids walking in the hallway, many of them with no masks, and they're standing right next to each other in Georgia. Um so it really is something because if the COVID virus, uh, COVID-19 virus spreads, everybody in the in the entire um, in the entire world, I mean, in the U.S. for I mean, is where this is primarily happening. Everybody in the U.S. for sure is uh, impacted by that because it means more cases of COVID in community. And we know how infectious and fatal it is. I want to circle back. Uh, oh, you want, go ahead, Ryan. Oh, well, yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, yes, the entire community should be paying attention to mm-hmm. this, right? This is putting the entire community at risk. Uh, I, specific, I mean, obviously, children and teachers, support staff were, were the uh, first front of that. But the right, but talk to most of us. And, and what's our concern? It, our concern is bringing it home, right? Mm-hmm. So this is about community spread. Absolutely, everyone in the community is invest should be invested in this and should be paying attention to it and should be questioning why the school board has the ability to put the entire community at risk. The school board is in charge of schools. Why are they making decisions that affect the entire community's health? I don't even know where they get the nerve to think they have that power. Mm-hmm. And um, just to, I do want to circle back to to that mechanism for getting people to go back to work um, and, and in the economy. Um, so can you just sort of like maybe talk a little bit about w- who is motivating that, why they're doing it and how? I mean, we, you, you alluded to a little bit earlier with the evictions and, and creating that pressure, but could you just sort of like dilate on that a little bit? Well, for me, this is where I, I'm always scared. I sound, start sound like a conspiracy theorist. But right, but it's um, we're it friendly to, to those here. <laughs> but it goes back to something Aaron said, right? It's it's um, it's what are, what are the articulated reasons for going back? And they're so flimsy, right? Uh, we need kids. I mean, it's basically, we need kids to go back to school is good for kids. And it's like, yep, but there's a pandemic, so that's like you know, it's like saying vegetables are good. Uh, eat your vegetables during an E. coli outbreak, mm-hmm. right? It's you gotta you gotta think about the context. And so for me, anytime you see an unstoppable force in our society, when you see something being propelled where there's not much uh, call behind it, uh, support behind it from the broader public, that's economics. Mm-hmm. And we know that, uh, for example, again, Auctioner has business in front of JP school boards, and here they are signing, signing off on whatever Jefferson Parish wants to do. Um, I think one of the school board members is on the Chamber of Commerce, right? That's an interesting conflict of interest in my mind. Um, I, I'd have to double check. I, I've only heard that. I, I mm-hmm. can't properly source that. Maybe I shouldn't say that. But, um, but yeah, when you when you just see something so illogical uh, that that just defies all reason, right? I mean, we are a system of educators. The people at the top are supposed to be educated. How on earth are they looking at these numbers, looking at what's happening, uh, and saying that this is a good idea? And the only thing I can conclude is economic forces. 
is the only thing I can conclude because there's no reasonable person who can look at this just in terms of, of education value and go, this is a good idea. Mm-hmm. Because again, you, you want to talk about kids falling behind? Dead kids fall behind. Uh, kids who feel who are nervous they killed their parents fall behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, kids whose teacher dies in the middle of semester fall behind. So, I mean, give it a rest. The, it, the arguments it, are illogical. And if you're so, like teaching or learning while you're terrified of the situation and you're predisposed, I mean, just thinking in terms of hierarchy and needs, uh, how, how could you potentially, how could you possibly not fall behind? And and, and I want to kind of grapple with this concept of fall behind too. Like, what does that mean in terms of so many educators? Um, I remember, and I don't want to like get into it about like standards-based education, like in terms of like the idea or concept of it and having sort of standards across the board or whatever. However, I do remember when a lot of the common core state standards and, and the, and the states, the essentially the Louisiana state standards and all these other things started coming out. Many educators were extremely concerned with the fact that they were not developmentally, developmentally appropriate, especially for the younger children, which means that if they're, already if the the standards that are defined are already further than is developmentally appropriate then necessarily necessarily based off of that that entire framing that is going to mean that you're going to start behind no matter what so like i don't know it's just like this is used as as sort of a a a cudgel in a certain sense just because if you're defining everything i'm just thinking about even just like my job. So I'm a community-based social worker and like I've been really struggling with the pandemic, which I've talked about on the show and also have not been on the show very consistently just because I just trying to deal with my, my health, my mental health. But, um, you know, I just, I see that a lot with my work. It's, you know, because we're at home and we're, we don't have all of our travel time and all of the kind of back and forth and having to wait at social security for three hours, we're actually expected to do more work. Like we're expected to to really work more than I, I would normally. And mm-hmm. I just can't imagine like what the pressure for the kids are gonna be. Cause they're gonna have to, like, are they changing the standards? Cause you know, it's gonna be after Labor Day that stuff is opening. And it's, you know, are they gonna have to know all the same stuff or all the same tests? And, but in a much shorter amount of time, like, are they gonna, are like the AP kids, are they gonna still, be expected to take their AP tests at the end of the year and have all of that information. And it's like, um, none of us are, I mean, I don't want to speak for everybody because maybe, maybe our listeners are overachievers, but like, I, I don't know anybody who has been functioning at a hundred percent. And like, if I'm even like at functioning at 60% on any given day, it is like a cause for celebration. So it's, <laughs> like, not only are we like the normal pressures of school like trying to get into college and trying to to deal with everything but like i just can't imagine with all the mental stressors of the pandemic too like mm-hmm. i can address that actually directly and maybe you would want to be uh filling with that brian but uh the i noticed specifically in my um in, in when i went to the bessie board meeting um when they voted to pass the state level guidelines for Bessie, uh, which are the ones that sort of filtered all the way down to Jefferson Parish and then all the way down to schools and individual teachers. Uh, there was a point in that meeting, and I remember very specific, it's very specific, they started talking about LEAP testing, which is our Louisiana standardized testing. And uh, they were essentially talking about like, okay, how can we do like the, the you know, early assessment of, in the year, the one that kind of get the baseline data. And I was just remembering and thinking about the plan that they just voted in, or they were, you know, it was under debate and discussion in this whole situation. And I was like, you know, they don't have any uh, provisions at all in here for COVID testing. But you're really worried about standardized testing, aren't you? Isn't that something? Like, what, what's, what, what is this about? Like, why are we... It, 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 it's sort of like a very, very, uh, like... I don't want to say... Well, it's like a hegemonic normal. You know, it's sort of like pushing people and like saying, we have to get back to normal no matter what. And if we, if we uh, do get back to normal, then that's good. And it has some kind of a value and, and everything else, any kind of other like life threatening components or whatever are 
um, are irrelevant if we can get back to normal. Yeah, and for me, that's that's where I become scared that politics might be in this, right? Because we know that the guy at the top is basically a COVID denier. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has supporters all over the country. And I wouldn't be surprised if on school boards across the country. And and so again, when I look at the recklessness of this, these reopenings and trying to figure out who's pushing for it, that's where it again comes back to this idea of economics, right? Because what is what does the guy at the top need? Uh, he needs an open economy. He needs a growing economy. He needs the world to go back to what it was, right? Um, and and so, and and that's obviously to some degree what everyone wants. I have I have no interest in fully going back to the old normal, but uh, but he's yeah. It's 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 this insane push to get back to a normal that cannot be. Uh, and like I said, there's there's strong economic incentives tied to it and sadly political ones that uh, have me very concerned as well. Yeah, it's, this I mean, weird, this is, it's this like is, a super weird thing. Oh, I hate it. This is like kind of part and parcel of the whole like business style of government, you know, like it, it I don't know when it happens, but some this, Someday back in the past, they were like, oh, the government, that's not efficient. Let's get a businessman to run it. Mm -hmm. And then that just became like how we do government. Like you get some guy who is a businessman and then he becomes a politician and then he doesn't do anything. And he just because like with business, like you're not concerned with like you like somewhat are concerned with like how happy your customers are. But that's only in like benefit to like how much the business will profit like we would rather profit than our customers be happy but now your customers are constituents and it does not match you not have the same allegiance to them you're just kind of trying to manicure the information for your ends and it's it's absolutely not effective like you don't go to business school and read like the art of war where you're supposed to like play these zero-sum games and then go to a place where you're supposed to like listen compassionately to people's problems and like use these resources to help them because these resources are essentially taken out of their pockets like against their will yeah the the, the term public private partnership is one that should not exist or at the very least viewed as a threat <laughs> i mean that's what we have in america is a management class we don't have like all these like working classes anymore we just manicure these resources you make schedules mm-hmm. how many people in this country know how to make do microsoft excel like <laughs> come on yeah i mean like I, it's even you can see that in the push for like stem education mm-hmm. i mean not that i think stem education is a bad thing but um it's this idea that like oh if you go to college and you and you major in a humanity it's like well you're never going to get a job why are you even doing that as opposed to like my, yeah i don't i I like I'm a social worker now and I I uh, my undergrad was in international relations but like I've I wouldn't say I've like directly used my like information I learned there but I learned about like global issues and I learned you know critical thinking and things like that and you know when we have like a focus solely on like the analytical stuff like STEM without the humanities without the history that's how you end up getting Elon Musk selling us a chip that we're going to implant in our brain. Um, yeah, a society that generates uh, sociopaths. I can't. I. Yeah. Again, on my like hatred of Elon Musk, which is like apparently a running theme in this in this show. Um, yeah, you hate Tulsi Gabbard and Elon Musk. Yeah, he probably should have taken like some philosophy classes. Oh, he took like like probably like Lockean. He probably took Lockean philosophy, if anything. Anyway, uh, I know Brian wants to get in, but I gotta go to station ID. You are listening to WHIV LP New Orleans one hundred two point three. This is Good Morning Comrade. Go ahead, Brian. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. The, the the role of humanities, yes, I think is very undervalued. Uh, I would suggest it's probably the education that Trump is missing the most uh, is a humanities education. Um, and yeah, and and you know, and this notion of I, I like I think Scott said it, a management class, right? Um, that in our culture we because we're just you know we're peak capitalism, we're in stage capitalism, and we keep turning everything over to businessmen, right? And that includes schools. And I used to live in I lived in Korea for six years, uh, and uh, and I talked about it in, in my book about the, the education system they have over there, 
And for me, the charter schools are trying to imp, uh, replicate the Korean system, but it's all about, and what happens when you have these charter schools, these businessmen come in, everything starts turning into quantifiable data, right? And like for some of us, the, a kid's success is that he gets along better with other kids. That's his success for the year. And sorry, it's not, it doesn't show up on the math test, right? But so we, so our education is getting turned on its head and turned into something that it was never meant to be, which was a business model. More and more our education is a business model. And that's why, uh, what I think the most successful uh, or one of the biggest gains the charter schools have done and Jefferson Parish keeps following their lead despite them not having a track record of success is charter schools now spend as much money on administration as they do on education. Mm -hmm. Right. Because once you start letting business people in charge, business people think that they are the solution. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, they already think that. And I feel like we're seeing that in Jefferson Parish, because, like I said, that these policies these people are doing are so detached from the reality of what classrooms are and Mm -hmm. how children behave that you're like you. How are you in charge of this system when you seem to not understand what it is Mm -hmm. at its at its most basic level? Uh, you know, we can. I'll skip all the contracting and and, and businesses business stuff that they're doing, uh, but yeah, we we just have some really uh, messed up priorities being imposed on us by business people who have no business running school. <laughs> they want to do the books, that's fine, but the idea that they're in charge of educational policy is obscene and absurd. You know, it's funny too. I wanted to jump in just really quick and talk about the way that they frame these things rhetorically as well. Like, oh, public-private partnership. And I feel like I'm doing another George Carlin bit here. But like when you sort of push against it, like, ah, public-private partnerships are bad. Oh, you're against partnership. Okay. So what you're supposed to be doing, you know? Oh, uh, actually, like this obsessive focus on, you know, science, technology, you know, STEM, education. Oh, you're against science, teaching science, huh? You know, that's sort of the either that's sort of an implied framing that they use when they, you know, get their, you know, psychotic, you know, word Frankenstein makers and, and, you know, in their little crazy labs uh, and sort of like put them out together. They're, what they're doing is they're trying to even in the terminology that they use when they, when they roll these things out uh, there, these folks are, um, putting it in a sense that the words that they're using are already a case for and defense of that idea. I mean, that's kind of how those arguments work. School choice is another one. Go ahead, Scott. Like they're essentially just there to like be insincere and like trick you and like Mm -hmm. get you to get on their side. Like, like, I mean, I would, I mean, are the the KIPP, do the KIPP like budgets, are they uh, public? I mean, I would just want to know how much like these schools per school like pay for marketing and like how to attract people to your schools. Like, why would a school ever need a marketing budget? Like, why are there billboards for a school? Like, I there just needs to be like a public option. And if there's some kind of maybe Catholic or like religious option or like maybe secular magnet school, like that is kind of the ideal mold i believe right no no you have to eliminate all private school in my opinion but that that's just my that's just my position i'm not a teacher this is just my like but like being a business person like your goal isn't like to be successful isn't to like like be successful like and have people be happy it's to shift the paradigm it's to like break the mold yeah innovate your way out of this you know innovate 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 innovate. stupid buzz terms that like some like J- Duco like uh like college professor like Frank Luntz came up with all of these ideas by the way no that actually this actually literally happened the guy who started WeWork uh-huh. cool as well because he wanted to he wanted it was a preschool that he was like it was called um I think it was like we learn oh no that's yeah. oh my god that's from hell he was expressly he said there's no reason why a preschooler can't be an entrepreneur and we're gonna we're gonna foster the entrepreneurial spirit of our preschoolers and it obviously failed because that dude is like really bad at everything yeah i mean do they sell like thank god 
like is there like a baby size calculator i can get oh my god yeah like little kids wearing like a little tiny suit or whatever like that and you know there were like organized classes where like one kid would be the kid like the other kid's boss and they would like fire him or something just the michael J. j fox alex v keaton character but even younger yeah i just feel like they did like whatever the toddler version of like the the imfj yeah personality test was all the time oh man you got to take that in preschool now instead of like drawing <laughs> an apple oh my god this is no I, and like the, the sad part is that is like that's a true thing that's a true thing that happened in our country and we all yeah. like all right fine but like it's not it's not fine right and it's you know it's it's scott's point because it's uh it's what i again observed in korea right is here's here's schools advertising their schools what percentage of a school budget should be advertising when your goal is to educate, right? Like, right. I mean, so yeah, the business business needs to be out of many aspects of society and education and healthcare are probably the two best examples of where business has absolutely no business being in there. Uh, business mindset, business people, um, if, they, if they insist on bringing their business practices, have no business to, within a hundred feet of a school. That is not what that is not what we need to make schools better. We need to be listening to education experts, not business experts. Mm-hmm. Schools are none of your business. Business. <laughs> that's actually a pretty good line. We should probably roll with that. that is, that's actually quite brilliant. That's quite brilliant. That was your uh, that was your Don Draper moment of this show, Scott. There you yes. go. Toasted schools. <laughs> I'm actually writing that down. Yeah. Yeah. I'll save it for Wednesday. Uh, so anyway, uh, just wanted to kind of get an, into a little bit more of the specifics of that, too, because when they have and how it affects teachers and then how it also if, if educators in general, not just teachers, but but essentially there becomes this sort of bureaucratization of educators as well, because like when you create this, you know, system of sort of like top down, you know, and you actually see it in how people uh, like how educators sort of respond to these problems and how it, because it, it comes from, you know, the administration, from the superintendent, it goes to the principal uh, who basically their idea is, you know, well, I have to make this happen because my job depends on it. And they just shove that down onto the teacher and say, OK, y'all do it. And if it's, you know, I have a plan, I have my piece of paper that's got all the stuff written on it. And it says that you have to do this. So if you if you don't do it, then it's your it's, if, if, if we fail here, it's actually your fault. Well, and what and, and Jeff, you can probably speak to this too. What percentage of the admin work that you do is about creating work for administrators to review? Uh, I mean, I've been you know asked for schedules and all these other sort of things uh, time and time again, and um, it's funny too because they've created almost like a micro bureaucracy in the schools as well by having like. Um, teacher like uh the lead teachers and master teachers and all these other kind of like it it reminds me of when i worked at uh like sears or something and they would have like a lead employee who wasn't actually a manager but like they would like be the person that would be like it would get like a dollar more an hour or something like that and they would basically be the one that the manager would go to and say okay now y'all you not a manager go tell all the rest of the employees what to do and try and sort of co-opt uh folks um, like co-opt workers essentially into, um, and by privileging them, but into sort of like manufacturing or at least, you know, whipping up some kind of agreement and consent. And this like, I don't know, Brian, I worked in logistics for like 10 years and all this stuff reminds me of like working in logistics, like, (laughs) because like we were like, we like worked in like a vehicle yard. So like, basically we had to like manage these vehicles and make sure they like, if they were damaged, they go to repairs and like, make sure the people that are operating them are like doing fine, like look sharp, all this stuff. And like, that's probably about 15, 20% of the work. The rest is generating all this data, Mm -hmm. data, spreadsheets, turn, taking the spreadsheet, making sure it's filled out correctly. You have the correct information. If it's not, you got to relay that back to the person filling it out. And when you have that, you have to make sure it's logged somehow. It has to be not on the paper. The paper's no good. You got to put it in 
the system on the computer and the computer's got to go to somebody else and somebody checks the, the computer and if it's not up to their standards they go hey man you got to go over all these numbers again and it was just like oh you're calling people all day people are calling you and like i don't think i have a job that is anything like being a teacher <laughs> Mm-hmm. It, it is not similar in any respect like it's just night and day mm-hmm. like your job that, is to drive a truck every job yeah. is to, every job is to do that job and like fill out tps reports yeah <laughs> yeah like social i'm a really good worker i'm really good with the, the clinical aspects of stuff but i am constantly in trouble for the admin side of things and it's like which is like a very different like it's like a totally different skill set to be good at like admin stuff and like it's it's actually a skill set that like the things that make me good at being a social worker mean I struggle with the other stuff Mm -hmm. but like that is like very much part of the job and it's and I think it's again it goes well number one I mean it goes back to the idea that we're like we are not we don't value things that aren't quantifiable so Mm -hmm. it's like it's not enough that like oh um this person's emotional health is better so like for y'all like oh, this, this kid like learned how to talk through an argument instead of like throwing their water bottle, right? Like that legitimate win, but like Mm -hmm. that's not super quantifiable. Whereas like, oh, this kid went up 10 points on their math test. That is quantifiable. But then it, it also like shows how disingenuous the idea that they're somehow not reporting data for COVID. Cause like, you better believe that you report data on every single other thing that goes on in those schools, in those businesses. Like it is, it is nothing but reports, but like somehow like, Oh, that's too much. We're just not, we're just not going to check it. It's like so disingenuous. I mean, of all the spreadsheets I've filled out and like emails I had to send to like administrators, I don't think any of that actually did anything to make anybody like a better person. (laughs) Or do their job better. It's just sort of like it, it, it's this constant like trickle down of like I said before, like if if it's if you didn't do the paperwork that goes along with it, it doesn't matter if you did the thing. You, you know, it, it basically you have your documentation or you didn't do it, even if you did it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think well, and what goes along with that, right, is that, again, that business when the more business oriented education becomes um, is is then business corruption, juking the numbers. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, oh no, we have a lot of discipline problems. Uh, you're not allowed to write discipline referrals anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's yeah. how we'll deal with it. <laughs> you are listening I mean, to WHIV LP New Orleans 102.3. This is Good Morning Comrade. Can continue your point, Brian? Yeah. Yeah. And well, and, and so, yeah, like, uh, so just the more that numbers are valued, quanti- quantifiability is valued over anything else, then the more teaching gets misdirected to um, what it's what it's really not supposed to be. Um, like I said, the, the only reason I need to be in class is to teach character. I can teach my subject very well virtually. I'm, I actually, based on some of the resources I have, I can do it better. If all my kids have computers, I can teach my subject better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in person is for me to build character. And that's not considered. That's not men- measured. That's not really valued. Uh, maybe individual principals seeing how you interact care about that. But the bigger administration has no interest in how good you actually are with the kids, how mm-hmm. good you are at teaching. They only care about how good you are at getting test numbers up. Yeah, there's just one small part of the job. There's no such thing as qualitative data. There's only quantitative data. There's only nothing. And and this, I mean, this is gets to get back to the testing thing, which I just just like the thing that I obsess over the most, Um, like like understanding if somebody knows something isn't measured by like whether or not they get the right or wrong answer on a test like if they put a b c or d you know they answer part a right and didn't get part b right or um like it it doesn't actually measure what they do and don't know in any actual qualitative way it just says oh they got that question right or wrong so they know it or they don't based on the specific and i'm getting like really on my bullshit here but like um, it, it basically is an isolated measure of, OK, this they know this question in this specific context to determine whether or not they know how to do the thing that we're claiming to measure here. You know, and, and 
it, it really is like a huge problem because that's the entire basis of how education is uh, framed and viewed and operated with and, and it's how teachers are evaluated and it's how like kids get placed into classes and I mean yeah, it, it really can determine their future uh, I, just, I used to be like a first grade teacher's aide and I just remember there's like one thing that really stuck out in my head and you know the teacher was like there was never any way to like show how good she was at this but there was one little kid who just had like a million questions all the time and would like disrupt class and so what she would have him do is he had a little piece of paper that she would decorate and tape to his desk so that every time he had a question, he would write down his question. And then once every half hour, she would come over and go through all of his questions and answer them. Mm -hmm. So that way he got his questions answered, but he wasn't disrupting class. And I'm like, wow, that is like such an amazing self-regulation technique without without putting that kid down or stamping down his natural curiosity. It's just like, oh, we have to learn that sometimes it's more convenient. And like, sometimes you just have to wait a little while to get your answer, but you're going to get your answer. Mm -hmm. And like, I always think about that. And I'm like, God, there's like no way that that could be like quantifiably shown to be like, she would just never get credit for that. But like that kid probably is a lot better off in life having learned that lesson so early, like learning how to regulate themselves that way. And it's like, and like, that's what makes a good teacher. Like, and, and yeah, I just like, I feel for y'all so much. Cause like my, my job, like that is like what I'm supposed to do. And I do get credit for that, but you know, but I've also not, my clients aren't getting like tested on like how little crack they smoke because of like my, my, um, my interference, you know? So it's just, I can't imagine if I was like, yeah, if they judged like my clients the same way they judge your kids, I'd be like, mm -hmm. I'm going to get fired. Yeah. If you got judged by how, how much crack your clients smoked. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, you know, like, like I said, like having that experience uh, working in Korea and like I said, talking about it in my book, um, there's two, the two best education systems in the world consistently are Finland and South Korea. Uh, and so it might be surprising that I have critical things to say about South Korea's system. But one thing about it is because it's so pressure-based, because it's so quantitative, because it's so crammed for this test, um, it produces the most unhappy kids in the world, right? Uh, that's according to Korean kids. They, mm -hmm. on a UN survey, Korean kids rated themselves the unhappiest in the world. Uh, wow. mean, and, and, and cram schools, hot, lots of pressure, lots of standardized tests. And then you go over to Finland. Oh, Finland's doing the same thing. Finland's doing the exact opposite, extended recess. <laughs> um, uh, high paid, high paid, well-trained teachers. Uh, uh, synergy between all of, well-developed curriculum that has synergy between all of it. And, you know, and so of course, if a businessman's looking, what school system am I gonna replicate? South Korea is easy to replicate. And thus we get charter schools mm -hmm. that are run like South Korean schools. And sorry, we don't even have the culture of South Korea to be successful in the charter model um, because we don't have because uh, because we don't have the pressure, the cultural pressure to succeed, uh, the parental involvement mm -hmm. uh, needed. Uh, and then, you know, they're just burning teachers out in the charter schools, overworking them so that they, they won't stay long, don't have to pay them much if they don't stay long. Uh, and then the kids are always dealing with new teachers mm -hmm. instead of experienced teachers. And thus the charter model is just just a disaster. And, and in addition but, to that, too, you have these like, you know, nonprofit charter schools that are run by for-profit charter management organizations. And then you also have um, groups like Teach for America that um, actually provide like, like, a, like I think of Teach for America, like a temp agency in a lot of ways. Like they basically have teachers come in, they work for a couple of years. Now it's obviously a temp agency for like a largely most not all of it maybe this is too much but like like essentially many of the uh especially now but but many of the people coming in have like you know master's degrees and they come from like elite schools uh and essentially they get a lot of their student loans forgiven by being a part of this program which doesn't even that doesn't even happen for for regular teachers for for teachers that have been um you know gotten a degree in uh in education uh th and, and i'm not like trying to like talk 
bad about the people that do it. They're responding to material oh, no, incentives. No, not about the people that do it. I applied well, and didn't get in, and I was like really upset about it. But then I met a bunch of Teach for America people, and I was like, "You are nightmare people." Well, it, it, well I guess my point here, I'm Teach Nola. Yeah, well, that's not my point though. My point here is to. Um, I agree with most of everything. No, my, my point is that there's like a material incentive for people to do that, to do, to get into education, even if they're not from an education background, and you know some stick with it some don't but the large but what it largely does is replace a workforce that has already been sort of um under attack and it does it in a way that it does it replaces that workforce with workers that are in a position where they can get out and still be comfortable well more importantly i think i think what it does is it it provides fresh meat for the meat grinder of charter schools um the first uh when i came down for teach nola within two days uh, of, of classes, I was like, I'm going to work in Jefferson Parish because I know I'd rather work in a public school than a charter school because those charter schools look like South Korea schools. Mm-hmm. And I ha- and I know how the intensity and the pressure and the burnout that charter that uh, South Korea schools created. And now they want to make that in Jefferson Parish too. <laughs> and, right, exactly. And again, and 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 again, it's it's why based on what? Like every every year I'm in Jefferson Parish, they try to be more and more like charter schools. But where is the charter school success? Mm-hmm. Right. These guys, they claim they're so data driven, but then they don't they're not doing anything based on data. Mm-hmm. Where are charter schools successful? The only thing they've done is flip their budget to spend as much on administration as they do on teaching. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing I've seen them do successfully. Everything else is pretty standard. And at that they've done a fantastic job. Good for them. <laughs> um, we're, we're, we're coming up on uh, time, but uh, Scott, you want to make a point and then we can wrap up? I was just wondering what discipline is like in these schools because I was a bit of an over-disciplined kid. And, uh, you know, like sometimes you go in there and they they see that it was just a weird, like a weird thing that just occurred and no one's really at fault. And they'll just be like, all right, just get out of here. Like I reckon when like a person becomes like a liability discipline wise it's it's more important to just like not discipline but more like punish them Mm -hmm. like be very administrative well yeah unfortunately part of the thing with charter schools is it it benefits them to say to keep their numbers up so if a kid isn't doesn't test well or is like a, a disciplinary issue or whatever like it actually it's better for the charter school to just not have that kid attend anymore and that's why you have like part of the charter school system in New Orleans are the schools for the kids who got kicked out of all the other charter schools. Um, they're like kind of the last chance school. And it's, you know, I mean, we know that schooling does just the way it kind of is works right now, just traditionally, you know, it doesn't work for every kid. And, and, but we're basically, it's like, it's, I mean, it's criminalizing kids like at a young age and that's a whole, I know that's like a whole other can of worms, but um, yeah, it's really heartbreaking because like, you know, kids are kids. <laughs> and I, like I love kids and it, it's so sad when they they're not getting the things they need yeah I just want to say that back to the school closings I just want to point out that the uh, level of care they took last week and correctly closing down the schools with hurricanes coming towards us right that's the level of care they have um, in the face of a hurricane but in the face of a pandemic it, it's gone away right an abundance of caution for hurricanes and almost no regard for a pandemic and and I just want to say that, I, you know, I think it's about I think it's about the direct causality going back to my law degree. Um, right. If, if you're sending a, a bus full of kids to school and there's a wind that blows it off the road, you know, you're responsible for it. Mm-hmm. But with COVID, because the, the, the fallout from it is so far removed from the initial infection and things like mm-hmm. that, it's going to be so far removed from the initial opening schools. I feel like they feel like there's not going to be blood on their hands or their fingerprints aren't on this. It's obscured enough. There's enough insulation. We know we know when 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 these kids start getting sick, when they start bringing it home to their parents, when we start getting sick, um, we will know what it's from. I've been taking good care of myself for months. For months, I've been locking myself away and doing what I'm supposed to do to keep myself safe. And if I get sick, I know what it's from. Mm -hmm. I know who forced me out of my lockdown safety procedures. Mm Yeah, 100 percent. And we know like we know more than anybody as educators specifically. Uh, and this is going to have to be the last last sort of word. But we know how much of a Petri dish schools are. 
<laughs> on the at the best of times. Uh, I mean, it, just imagine how um, absolutely um, and uh, like that that applied to a global pandemic that is uh, affecting the U.S. more you know harder than anywhere else in the world. Um, that doesn't seem very good to me. It seems the actually kids are very so terrifying. small, and they have so the much Scott in them. What's that, like, Brian? Oh, sorry. Flu season's coming up. Yeah, flu season. Aaron? Yeah, I just, I don't understand how kids are so small, but they have so much snot in them. Like, that's, that's what kids are made of, I think. Like, it's like their bodies must be like, instead of 60% water, it's just like 60% snot. Yeah. They're so tiny. They'll just have like the giantest snot bubble. And you're like, what? Yeah. Well, we can quantify how much snot they make, I think, but we can't quantify what they've learned in the same way. True. <laughs> We got to uh, wrap it up. So thank you so much, Brian, for coming on. Uh, tell us just a little thank bit about um, uh, where we can find some of your work and your, and your book. Uh, where, Sorry, can we where can we find some of your work and in, in, in your book? I, I didn't realize before you came on that you had a book out. Oh, uh, uh, the book's called um, Stranger in a Stranger Land, My Six Years in Korea. Uh, so I think you just Google that and find it. Uh, don't buy it from Amazon. Bezos is terrible to book writers. Thumbs down. Uh, he charges more than my publisher. And I get 50 cents for it, uh, charging more than my publisher. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a criminal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, look me up on Medium, Brian Williams. I have a page there. And uh, yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Of course. Uh, yeah, we have to have, uh, have you back on the show sometime. Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah, you oh, can please, listen to uh, Good Morning Comrade every Tuesday on WHIV. We also have releases on our website, uh, goodmorningcomrade.com. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining. Yeah, and good luck. See you both tomorrow. Yeah. You guys in my thoughts. And yeah. I'll be saying thoughts and prayers. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. You are listening You're to. <laughs> Screw you too. <laughs> you are listening to WHIV FM. Love you, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.